Good morning, everyone. It's a great honor to open God's Word this morning. I know we say it, or at least I say it every Sunday. I really wish we could be together. I uh, I think it's wonderful that we have technology. It's still an honor for me to to preach, uh, to open up God's Word, even if it's in front of a camera. But please pray that uh, that we may uh, meet together soon. We're in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5, uh, Matt read. Uh, the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, this week, next week, we'll be looking at the Lord's Prayer. Very, very important passages in Scripture. Uh, in many ways, this is gospel living and praying for God's people. So uh, this is uh, this is a big passage for us Christians. But before we get into the passage, um, you know, finding, when you're doing translation work, and it doesn't have to be with a Bible, it can be, I mean, whatever it may be, but you're translating one language into another, there are some serious difficulties with capturing the essence of a specific phrase, uh, not just into the language that you're translating into, but into the culture that you're translating it into. So I'll give an example. I used to work at the Canadian Bible Society before I worked, uh, uh, before I came on as an intern at Messiah uh, a number of years ago. Um, I wasn't on the translation team at, uh, tr- at the Canadian Bible Society, but, um, but I would get all of these updates from the translation team. And uh, what they were working on primarily was a decades-long translation campaign to translate the Bible into Inuktitut, the language of the Inuit people. Just remarkable. Um, I think it took from start to finish a little over 30 years to do it. But one of the most comical stories in the whole translation process uh, was trying to find an equivalent word for a camel for the Inuit people. You picture it, the the Inuit people live in, I think, all the territories. I think they live in Greenland as well. Like, They live essentially where there's cold most of the year and not much sunlight a lot of the year. Um, pretty well the complete opposite terrain as the deserts in the Middle East. So when you're translating the Bible, how do you translate a camel into... Uh, the the language of the Inuit people. I mean, I don't really know. I can't kind of give you the story of how they did it, but um, like there is no word for word equivalent. Uh, so you just kind of, I guess, grasp the essence of what a camel is or a, the animal. I'm not sure, but I always thought that was hilarious. Like they have polar bears up there, they have elk, caribou, not so much camels. So this morning, this is, this is pertinent for us because we're going to look at the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, and it is in the law of God. When we hear the word law to our English ears, um, it's not a bad word, but it's not a word that uh, necessarily, necessarily elicits excitement. Maybe for uh, those in our congregation that have gone to law school or if we have any kind of policy workers, you know, talk about laws and regulations and policies, and that is what gets them up in the morning. But for the rest of us, uh, laws are fantastic, but they're kind of stiff. So when we talk about the law of God in the Old Testament, 
We are translating the word Torah, which is Hebrew, to law in English. The, the Torah, uh, the law of God, it, it, it works in some ways. We kind of get an idea of, of this translation, what the, what the Torah is, is about. But it doesn't capture the essence of what it truly is. To say, somehow uh, think that God's law is stiff. It is, um, it is not very exciting. It's kind of the part of the Bible, if you're going through a Bible reading plan where you, you yawn, or you are just, if you're super committed, like you plow through and you struggle through reading through the law. But the Hebrew understanding of God's law is not just jurisprudence. It is God's ways. Of course, it, it has to do with do's and don'ts, but it is the, the ways of God, the, the, the very essence of how God designed the world to be. In fact, God's law reflects his very character. Uh, it, it tells us about who God is, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what he loves, what he hates. It teaches us about justice, but that justice then points to God who is justice himself. So what we see here uh, in, in the Torah is more than just a law. It is, um, it is a wonderful, beautiful, robust, comprehensive view into the very nature of God. A manifesto, so to speak of God's character and his loves and his desires for his creation, whom we are a part of. We're a part of God's creation. This is why when we read in uh, the Psalter, King David especially, and especially in Psalm 119, King David gushes over God's law. Uh, he, he says that his law is better than life. How many lawyers have ever done that, or policy um, um, policy analysts have ever just like, man, federal regulations—they are better than life. Nobody gushes over that, and yet King David here—it is—it has gripped his very heart. You see, God's law, His Torah, is much more than just that. So this week, like I mentioned, we're going to be in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, um, in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, we need to understand that this, that these Ten Commandments are first and foremost, um, they're not just air, kind of airdropped in Scripture, but they're part of a grander story. So uh, they're found in the book of Deuteronomy, and this is the second time we see the the Ten Commandments in Scripture. The first time we see it is in Exodus. Deuteronomy is kind of like, I mean, the name of it is Second Law. In in um, that's what Deuteronomy means. It, it's kind of like an elaboration or a revisiting of the law that we've already seen in Exodus, uh, Leviticus, and Numbers. And uh, we have to understand that it, like I mentioned, it's not airdropped. It's not a series of disjointed. Um, commands and laws, but rather it is a culmination of God forming the Israelites into a nation after he has, after he had rescued them for, from 400 years 
of Egyptian slavery and right before he leads them into the promised land. So God gives the nation of Israel his law on uh, at Mount Sinai through Moses and it is a part of this grand narrative uh, where the Israelites are going from slaves to re- uh, their redeemed people, but then on their way to the promised land. So it's important that we, we grasp this, um, not just the Ten Commandments, but where it is in Scripture, because the Exodus is such a key integral part of not just the Old Testament or the five books of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But it is for the entire Old Testament, for the writings and the prophets, it's so crucial. And it's also incredibly crucial that we understand it if we are to understand the New Testament. Because uh, the, the New Testament is constantly seeing the Exodus, seeing Egypt as... Um, they are symbolic of something greater, and we'll get to that in a bit, but suffice it to say, it's very important that we have a good grasp on the Ten Commandments and on the story of the Exodus. So the Ten Commandments is a central piece of this story. Uh, it's far from do's and don'ts. And remember that God's laws express God's very good and very perfect character. So on as that is a bit of a, an introduction, Let's take a look at the Ten Commandments. And we'll see three things that the Ten Commandments will show us. We'll uh, see through them that they reveal to us God's good design for life. The second thing is uh, it will show us that we have an, in, uh, an inability to enjoy God's good design for life. And the last bit um, that it will reveal to us is the true beauty of God's law and why we ought not to see it as stiff, but as a beautiful, robust, wonderful invitation for us into, uh, into what it means to be God's people. So I'll repeat those things. The Ten Commandments will, will reveal to us God's good design for life, our inability to enjoy God's good design for life, And then it will also reveal to us the true beauty of God's laws, God's law. So we'll look at the first thing, God's good design for life. Uh, I want you guys to consider, uh, what is the cause of strife and heartache in your life? Uh, Within your family, um, at your workplace, wherever you may be, at school, with siblings, with spouse. And by the way, if you're not experiencing strife right now, praise God. But but think back on a time that you might have experienced strife and heartache. Is it not the the cause of uh, of relational breakdown? Is that not the cause of all, almost all, or if not all, of our heartache and strife in this life? All of our the ills find their genesis, so to speak, in relational breakdown. Organizations spend tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars um, on workplace training that includes conflict resolution. 
family members, partners, spouses, friends, they spend great sums of money on mediators and therapists, psychiatrists, to work through the aftermath of relational breakdowns. I really do think that relational breakdowns uh, and relational brokenness, it really is at the heart of our pain and ill. It's also at the heart of our estrangement with God. So it's not just that we have relational breakdowns with each other, but we also have a relational breakdown with God. And whatever your spiritual background may be, know this, that God's good design was to make you and I and all people to enjoy a deep and transparent relationship with him. That at the core of what it means um, to be a Christian, what it means to know the only true God is to have a relationship. And not in a quaint way, but a deep, satisfying, transparent relationship with him. And yet, relational brokenness rears its ugly head in that as well. Sin comes into the picture. And what is sin if not a rejection of God's good plan for us to be in a relationship with him? Somehow, I know what's best. I know what is going to make me tick, what I need, what kind of relationship will suit me better, and it is not God. Is this not the cause of our estrangement to God? I mean, look at Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. God makes everything. It's good. He makes the first Adam and Eve in the story of creation, and there is a rejection of God. And what, what is it, if not a relational breakdown? So we have a relational breakdown vertically with, with, uh, between us and God, a relational breakdown with each other, that's horizontally. But undergirding all of this, I think, is a relational breakdown internally. What do I mean by all of this? Human beings have a conscience. We know right from wrong, and contrary to uh, some of our, uh, our thought leaders, not all, but some of them, and some very predominant ones, uh, right and wrong is not a mere social construct. It is remarkable to see children know right from wrong almost from, I don't want to say infancy, but like from toddlers, even maybe before that, that it's something inherent in us knowing right from wrong. And it is a, a feature, a key feature of what it means to be made in the image of God. Animals, other animals, other beings, they don't have the, they don't have a conscience. They don't differentiate between right and wrong. It's, it's only us. It's a key feature of what it means to be made in the image of God. But consider for us what inner turmoil looks like. We know the right way to go, but we don't do it. We have inner dialogues with ourselves, some more vibrant and robust inner dialogues than others, but all of us wrestle, have this internal wrestling with the things we ought to do and the things we ought not to do. The things that are inherently right and the things that are totally wrong. And there are relational breakdowns also with inanimate objects as well. Uh, we have relational breakdowns with, with money. And what do I mean by that? We put 
a lot of emphasis on income or possessions or relationships. And it is not a healthy relationship that we have with these things. For some of us, it's an unhealthy relationship with food, with our devices. All of these things speak to a breakdown of a relationship. Our desires are completely disordered. They are completely disordered. And this is the wonderful thing about the law. Uh, the law recognizes this. God's ways recognize this. It recognizes that God had a perfect design and that there's a relational brokenness that has destroyed it. The law primarily is separated into two parts. Those parts that pertain to the relational breakdown between us and God and that part that relates to the relational breakdown between um, us and, and or one another, me and you, uh, you and your family member, you and whoever it, else it may be. And although at the surface, the text says stuff like, you shall not murder, you shall not uh, commit adultery, you shall not, sh- shall not steal, for, for uh, just three examples of the law. But it's important that we don't just read the prohibition, but we ask ourselves the question, well then, what's the opposite of that prohibition? Is the opposite of not uh, of stealing simply not stealing? Or is there something greater and more robust to it? Is there something greater and more robust than just not killing somebody? Like, is, is that just what the, the text is asking? I mean, at the very minimum, yes. Yes. Uh, if somebody is not killing somebody, but they have a desire to, and somehow they're not doing it, that, I mean, that's a good thing. But the law speaks to something more robust, more wonderful, more incredible. Remember that God's law, God's Torah, it reflects his very good character and his very perfect being. The Westminster Larger Catechism Question 99 says this, where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So we need to ask ourselves, that's a very helpful little bit to to think through. Where we see something that is forbidden, we need to ask ourselves, not uh, how do I not just commit that sin? Very good question. But more so, how do I capture the essence of the opposite? The first command calls for fidelity to the, the only true God. This is what it says. Um, sorry, in verse, uh, in verse seven, you shall have no other gods before me. I guess in many ways, it's, it's not just the first, it's the, the second and the third, um, as well. Uh, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or, um, or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then the next one in verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, the first, the second, the third, all call for fidelity to God. God calls himself a jealous God. The, the first commandment makes it clear the second and third really flesh that out. To have other gods besides the one true God is not a, a simple rejection of the Christian faith. Um, 
for another tradition or no faith at all. It is a rejection of what it means to be a flourishing human. What it means to live as you were designed to live. Remember, God is the creator of all and he is good. And his purposes are good. And for him to create you and I and then give us um, his ways of how to live, it is a good thing. And to go the opposite is to not experience flourishing, is to not know the very thing by which we were made um, to, to, to live for, to live into. To know in part uh, to this true connection to the divine, to God, and to trust that there's a promise that although in part we can know this relationship and know this, um, this, this deep satisfaction, this relational satisfaction, in part in this life, but also the promise that in the life to come we will know it fully. This is the relational heart of God. And to know God and to serve him and to not see it as, uh, as, as this faith as just one of many and I just want to pick it uh, because it sounds better than, say, Hinduism or transcendental meditation or just a type of secularism. It's No, it's, it's not that. It is instead... To follow God and to experience and to, to, to lean into and to grow into re- relational health or to not. And this is the beauty of God's law. It is good and it is for our flourishing. The next few commandments have everything to do with flourishing for human society. Healthy family units, prohibition of murder, like I mentioned, Adultery, theft, dishonesty in court. It's all absolutely critical, like just sociologically speaking, for a society to be healthy. Think about it. When this stuff breaks down on a societal scale. Okay, well, pause on that. When it breaks down in, in, within a family unit, what happens? The family unit breaks apart. How about in a city or in a country? Why is it that uh, murder, theft, dishonesty, when that becomes a mainstay of a nation, we call those nations failed states? These few commandments are so integral just for life to function, let alone thrive. But here's the thing. The last commandment, it's, uh, it, it speaks to not covet, to not envy. Let me read it to you. And you shall not covet. This is verse 21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Or anything that is your neighbor's. Christine, my wife, she reminds me often that coveting is uh, the begetting sin. Oftentimes, we don't we don't start with theft or murder or adultery, but it starts with coveting. So, if 
we are looking at the law and seeing the prohibitions and asking ourselves the question, well, what is the opposite of that? What is the true essence in flourishing um, the, 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 I guess, the essence, the goodness of the law? For, content, for coveting, it would be contentment. And just, just imagine if the city of Ottawa, the residents, regardless of the neighborhood they were in, imagine in your own house if you were content. Imagine if you were content, not for a day or two, but well after the new thing lost its shine. Or the new promotion, it didn't carry as much kind of weight in the office or at the workplace. Or if the honeymoon phase is over, what would it look like if you were truly content? How would that change society? How would that change your family? If you look back on the other commandments, we can see God's design for, for human flourishing when it talks about not bearing false witness. That's not just being honest in a courtroom. It's about not slandering people. It's about not gossiping. It's, it's about, it's about speaking highly of people. It's about giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's about not strawmanning your enemy. Imagine if, imagine if that happened. Would Twitter exist? Not stealing, it's not simply just taking what is not yours, but, but giving so that people don't need to steal. It's about seeing needs and meeting them. And murder, we see in, in, in the, the gospel that Jesus himself, it's not just it's not just murder is attacking somebody, but it's hating somebody. So how do we then see the opposite of this? How do we then look with eyes of love? Doesn't that speak of human flourishing? I mean, if we go through the law and just the, the Ten Commandments here and just take our time and, and, and see God's good purpose and design, wow. Like it really is something else. It sounds almost too good to be true. But it's worth it's worth doing. I'd encourage you take some time. We don't have a bot time to, to to go through this. I mean, each uh, what three four summers ago at Messiah, we did a whole summer series on the Ten Commandments. We don't have time to to exhaustively go through this. Take time yourself this week and plumb the Ten Commandments, asking yourself where is God's good design found in this. The Ten Commandments show us how terrific God's design for life is, but it also shows us our inability to live up to it. It's so obvious what to do and what uh, the, the result is in our life when we try to make this happen. We are rebels at heart. I've mentioned that. We are insurrectionists. We have large eyes and greedy bellies. It's a terrible combination. We want what we don't have. We grow tired of the things we do have. We don't have any contentment. We have seared consciences and no distrust and suspicion much more intimately than we've ever 
ever, ever wish we did. We put up walls so that we're not hurt by people. We are broken people. And by the way, if you don't really feel like you're very, a very broken person, I think that's fantastic. And there are a lot of um, both Christians and especially non-Christians that are really, really healthy, emotionally healthy people. They have great relationships. They've figured out ways to deal with conflict really well. But is anybody perfect? Has anybody had a good run of 70 or 80 years of relational perfection? I have a friend who has a friend who, uh, it would seem to me that, that this person, not a Christian, has everything going right and had everything going right from his childhood to his adolescence to his time at university to afterwards getting a job. Like there's no issues in his life until there was. Until there was a strain on relationships. It hits us all. And we have an inability to keep God's law perfect. So much so that in uh, the letter uh, of St. James chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it or has become a lawbreaker. That does not seem fair. <laughs> Perfection or nothing, and you're a lawbreaker. But consider this. Uh, these laws aren't just disconnected prohibitions, but they're deeply, deeply interwoven. Like I mentioned about coveting being the begetting sin, you can covet um, and not murder, but I almost guarantee you that if somebody's a murderer, they've coveted. You don't necessarily have to be a thief if you're a covet, uh, a person that covets. But if you've stolen, it's because you're coveting. (laughs) Take idolatry as another example. You can keep all the other commandments, except you can't if you're an idolater. Because what is idolatry if it is not looking to other things or other people or whatever it may be for true satisfaction, for deep, deep belonging, Uh, for true flourishing, if it's disconnected from God. All of these things are interconnected. And at the very minimum, if you sin against another human being, you are sinning against somebody made in the image of God. You are desecrating, in a sense, something that God made, someone that God made. So it makes sense then when I look at James chapter 2 and it says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable of all of it. So this is the thing. The law isn't just there to show us God's beautiful, perfect design for life. The law also acts as the means by which Human beings know they're sinful. And this isn't a bad thing. It's part of God's design. Um, 
that in the beginning there was this incredible scene in the garden before sin entered the picture. And it is wiped away, like it is gone because of sin. But God is redeeming it. And he has redeemed it. And he is inviting you to be a part of that redemption. The law was never designed as a means to achieve one's salvation. How could it? We are destined to to, to fail. But remember that this was given to the Israelites on Mount Sinai after God had rescued them from Egypt. Guys, this is, this is a picture, uh, um, God communicating to redeemed people how redeemed people ought to live. Look with me, verse 6. This is how it opens up before we even get into the commandments itself. It says this in verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 400 years. And Israel cried out to God. They did nothing themselves. And God, it says, with, with a strong arm and an out, uh, a strong hand and an outstretched arm, He rescued Israel. He rescued them. A stiff-necked people, a people that <laughs> pushed God away. And what does He do? He invites them in and makes a covenant with them. The, 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 the all caps Lord that we have in verse six, is the covenant name, it's used in place of the covenant name of God. And that covenant name speaks to the relational aspect of who God is. These people are already a part of, of God's covenant people. They can't earn their salvation because they're already saved. And this is what the law does as well. It shows us our great need for a savior. And God is saying, I'm your savior. So we don't have an, an ability to keep the law. But it, it's a beautiful thing because it points us to the one that will, that will rescue us completely and wholly. The third thing, and it's connected to verse 6, is the law showing the true beauty of who God is. With this declaration of, of uh, in verse 6 where it says, I am the Lord. Notice, what does it say right after? It says, I am the Lord, your God. Your God. There's no greater declaration for God to say over former slaves that I am your God. So it's, it's him saying that you are, you are no longer under the lordship of sin and slavery and death. You're under my lordship. No longer are you a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. The ancient gods, uh, and we read about this in, um, in the scriptures, but also archaeology helps us to understand a bit of this too. The ancient gods of the nations that surrounded um, the promised land, the gods of the Canaanites, uh, they were impersonal gods, but they called for worship that entailed the gluttony, that entailed drunkenness, ritual, cult prostitution, child sacrifice with the promise that that will lead to the good life. Do this, and you will know real human flourishing. We don't have a pantheon of Canaanite gods that we worship here in Canada. But our own gods uh, in Canada, I mean, they are 
They're not much different. Canada is full of all sorts of different cultures, so it's not as if I'm speaking of a monolithic culture of Canada. And yet, there are so many commonalities within the, the, the different Canadian cultures, maybe that's a better way of saying it, that are so similar to the Canaanite gods. Uh, for instance, gluttony. This inordinate desire for more. If that's not gluttony, I mean, that is gluttony. Gluttony is never being satisfied. Eating, acquiring, possessing, to no end, because there is no satisfaction. What is drunkenness if not uh, a desire to connect in some kind of a, uh, uh, ecstatic way to, um, and when I say drunkenness, drug use as well, to some kind of higher power or a means by which we cover up and dull our pain because we have an inability, a, a, a crippling fear to deal with our pain. How about uh, uh, cult, ritual, prostitution? We don't have temples to whatever God where there's cult, ritual, prostitution. But sexual conquest is something that is still... I mean, it is it is still seen with uh, a type of sick virtue. And I say sick virtue not because those terrible people out there. It's because it's it's within... So many of us in the church. A desire also to know uh, sexual pleasure completely disconnected with responsibility. And I don't mean responsibility in like a, like I need to do my chores before I can go outside. I'm an eight-year-old responsibility. But like responsibility for people. Uh, we, we unhitch uh, sex from procreation. In our culture. I mean. Child sacrifice. This is the one that. It it just always blows my mind. Because in the ancient world. If you wanted your crops to grow. If you wanted success in your life. You'd sacrifice a child. On a statue. Of the god Molech. And is not the, the, the Morgenthaler clinic. Just a temple to Molech. And by the way, if you have been pushed into or know people that have been pushed into an abortion, it is heinous and broken. And I'm not coming down hard on people that have a ton of pain and baggage from that. But the lie is if you have a child, it's going to ruin your prospects. It's going to, it is going to, if it's an unwanted child, there's going to be stigma around that. And, it, and it's not going to cause you to flourish. You're not going to have a flourishing life. These are what the false gods tell us. Do this and your life will flourish. And what is the result? Time and again, it is relational brokenness. It is not flourishing. Being estranged from from family members because of some terrible beef that happened or choosing to to, uh, push people aside for your own gain or... Feeling like if, if because of some issue that, that, that you didn't deal with right, there is no redemption for you because that thing has taken on a monster status in your life, whatever that may be. That is not flourishing. That's not flourishing. It's not. 
It's slavery. But God's law, I mean, we have this absolutely stupid understanding in parts of our culture, maybe in your own life, that an unhindered life is the best life. A a life devoid of restraint is the best life. But I'm telling you, restraint is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And especially when it comes to God's law, because it orders our desires in the way that they're supposed to. With God at the head, desiring our best, mending broken relationships, setting the groundwork for future healthy relationships, and ultimately dealing with our sin and brokenness. In a way that's not a cover-up, in a way that's not just numbing pain, but dealing with it, dealing with it deep down. Uh, I'll go one thing. I might go two things. One last, uh, at least one last thing. I'm not sure if you noticed that um, I, I touched on nine out of the ten commandments. I touched on commandments one, two, and three, and then I uh, touched on commandment five all the way to the end. I made no mention of the fourth commandment, which is keeping the Sabbath. It's uh, the l- largest portion within the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and I'll read it out. It's uh, it's four verses. This is what it says. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, your ox, donkey, any of your livestock, or the sojourner or the alien who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. It's interesting as well that in Exodus, the Ten Commandments in Exodus, um, on top of that, there is the mention that God created all things and rested on the seventh day as well. The Sabbath is a big deal. It is huge. And what it does here, and especially in its place in the Ten Commandments, that it is, um, if the Ten Commandments deal with relational health, uh, flourishing between us and God, the, the vertical and the horizontal, us, uh, one another, the Fourth Commandment straddles the two. It deals both with, with God and with, with one another. Um, there's this internal connection that happens uh, and, and the other commandments, I mean, they touch on this, but the Sabbath, it, it just does a, such a fantastic job of, of, uh, of connecting our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. But what is more is that the commandment of the Sabbath looks to something much greater than a day off a week. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, but also within the Old Testament as well, the Sabbath is a picture of the age to come about all of the promises fulfilled to know God in, in his fullness, uh, uh, to, to know him without any obstacles in the way. We, we call it heaven. We call it the new heavens and the new earth. We call it a return to, to Eden. It is, it is perfect, unbroken relationship with the living God. So much so, Jesus, he talks about entering his rest.
entering his rest. I love that in verse 11 and 12, or sorry, in verses uh, 15 and 6, I guess just 15, why, why do we, we, we take a day off a week? It's because God has saved us. We're no longer slaves. And the, the picture of heaven is an ending of our strivings, an ending of our sin, of trying to figure out how to make sense of, a, of, of difficulties in life. An end to doing the things we ought not to do and doing the things we ought not to do. I mean, we in the confession, there's no health in us. We are miserable offenders. It's an end to that. It's an end to that. The Sabbath looks to to Jesus himself. That when we enter the Sabbath, we are entering uh, uh, rest and eternity with God through Jesus. And it's this wonderful, beautiful picture. So here's the, the thing. How should we then live as redeemed people? Well, we should do our very best to keep God's commandments. But remembering always that we are doing it from a place of freedom. That if we have put our trust and our hope and our ultimate longing for the good life, the flourishing life, then by God's spirit, and it's interesting here that today is Pentecost, that God gave the church his Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will go so the helper may come. And the Holy Spirit is is God's own spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to, to, to dwell in us and help us to live in his way, to, to flourish and, and, and follow God's ways. And it's interesting. I say it's interesting because today is Pentecost. We can read about it in Acts chapter 2. But Pentecost was a pre-existing uh, holy day before Acts chapter 2. And, and what does it mark? It marks the giving of the law. What we read today is First Pentecost. And God laid out his plan for the flourishing, the, the good life, and deeply embedded in that, he was pointing to Christ and pointing to the redemption of not just the Israelite nation, but all who put their trust and faith in him, giving us the Holy Spirit, not to do away with the law, but that we may live to the glory of God, the law, and to know what it means to be people that bless and not curse people that, that see needs and meet them, people that declare the goodness of God, that worship the one true God, and that call people out of a life of slavery into a life of contentment. Not contentment just because, yeah, they have enough stuff, but because they know God, because he is the true gift. Friends, it is a wonderful day to, to, to recommit to that. If you don't know the Lord, uh, if you're curious about the faith, I would encourage you to read this. But, but more than that, I would encourage you to cry out to God as if you were uh, an Israelite enslaved in Egypt. And I promise you, I promise you, he will save you. And if that happens, guys, please tell one of us. We want to connect with you. We want to fellowship with you, connect with you, read the scriptures, be friends worship God together, and uh, that would be just terrific. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Ten Commandments. 
They aren't stiff laws, but they're an expression of your, of your very nature. They are the blueprint to what human flourishing looks like. It, they're the very thing that point to you. Lord, please help us to not look to false gods that promise the world, but completely under-deliver. But instead, let us look to you, the God that sacrificed on our behalf, that doesn't demand first and foremost that we sacrifice for some vague union with, with, uh, with you in, in, in the good life, but rather you sacrifice uniting us with yourself so that we may live uh, lives of sacrifice in thanksgiving to you. So Lord, bless us as we go our own ways. Bless us as we... Uh, as we uh, try our best by your Holy Spirit to, uh, to live a good life in you. In Jesus' name, amen.